0: Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have now to open up your word. Thank you for the beautiful music. I hope that was honoring to you and you were pleased. But now as we take your word, help us to be tenderhearted, open to your word, open to your teachings, and help us to grow. Help us to be challenged. Help us to learn, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, as you take your Bibles, please, in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel, as we continue a series that we've been talking about. If you do not have a bulletin, there are notes there. Otherwise, just raise your hand. The fellows who will walk through the auditorium, they'll hand you some of the notes that you can follow along. Several years ago, most of you all know about who Albert Einstein was, but several years ago when he lived in Jersey, he was asked to come and to speak at a, uh, at a college event at Swarthmore College. And he gets there, and there are hundreds of people for this banquet. And it's been publicized that Einstein is there, he's going to be the special speaker. And a lot of people came just for that reason. And so it came time in the program that he was supposed to get up and speak. They've done all the platitudes, they've given all the announcements, the introductions. And he walks up to the lectern, and he gets up there, and in his broken English he says, I don't think I have anything to say at this moment. And he turns around and sits down. The people who were in charge were absolutely aghast, you know, and everybody's kind of just mumbling, what's going on, was this a joke? And it wasn't. He was, he was absolutely serious. He realized that they were kind of waiting for something more, so he got back up and he said, when I have something to say, I'll come back. And he went and sat down. That was the end of the program. Six weeks later, he contacted the school and says, now I have something to say. They invited him back, okay, and they had him come back. Now, I feel kind of like he did that when it comes to talking at times about family, I don't have much to say, but I'm not going to sit down, okay, Okay, because I have an obligation this morning as we go through the Word of God, but this text is a really challenging text, and as we approach this portion, I feel like I'm a failure in this area and that I'm learning now all the things I should have done different. And so for those who are early in their family building, I'm going to speak from mistakes this morning and from this text on what to do when it comes to family building. And hopefully, it'll, you'll be able to profit from it. Here, if you're just joining with us this morning, we are going through the book of Judges and the life of the Judges. There's a whole bunch of them. We've been going from Judges chapter 1 all the way through ch- chapter 21. But I'm continuing into 1 Samuel because in 1 Samuel, we have the story of the last of the Judges. It's Samuel, is his name. The book is named after him. He was another, the last of the Judges before what happens Israel gets their king, starting with Saul and then David and Solomon. And And these judges served as government leaders, they served as civil leaders, they served as advisors, they were also religious leaders. Some of them dealt with military escapades, some of them they were one-on-one against enemies. Others like Samuel, they're going to give advice. They're going to lead the people to a point of revival and independence just through teaching, through influence, and through talking. To give a sense of where we're at in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, which we began with last Sunday evening, let me me back up and remind you what the time period is like. As the book of Judges just ended we read in the last few chapters of Judges that two times he makes a statement that in these days there was no king in the land and every man was doing that which is right in their own eyes. And so there's a lot of independence, there's a lot of division, there's a lot of, of people doing their own thing. When you end up with the book of Judges, which last Sunday a number of you couldn't be with us because the snow that hit, but we looked at an R-rated sermon. And I called it that because the last five chapters of Judges, there's some really rank, gross, dirty things that are going on in the life of Israel especially the last two chapters, there's idolatry that's going on, there's immorality, where there's a group of men that come, Jewish men, that come in the city and they, they attack a home because they want the man that's on the inside who's traveling through, and they want to have a, this homosexual rape of this man. And he ends up offering his second wife to them instead, and they take that woman, they brutalize her, they end up killing her. Violence comes out of that where they, they wipe out entire cities. The eleven tribes gather together, and they attack that tribe that housed that houses this city where these these activities had taken place. And they go to war, and even during this whole ma- this time, there's a real messed up chapter as it ends up in chapter 21, where. All 11 tribes have attacked the tribe of Benjamin and they have wiped them all out to just 600 men that have survived. They've killed all the women, the children, and there's only 600 men surviving. And then they realize, oh no, we've wiped out this tribe. We've got to find them some wives or they're not going to be able to propagate and we're going to lose one of the 12 tribes. So they, they come up with a plan that they go up to Jabesh Gilead, they wipe out the city, and they take all the virgins out of the city, but that's only 400 and they kill those people so that they can take their daughters and give them to these, these 600 men. But they need 200 more. But these 11 tribes they said to themselves, none of us, we promise, none of us will give our daughters to the tribe of Benjamin when they were engaging them in battle and they were attacking. And in the process of destroying the tribe getting it down to 600, they had made this vow. And now they realize, wait a minute these 200 of them need wives. But we made a promise that we would not give our daughters. So they go to the leaders, the leaders of the 11, go to the leaders of Benjamin, and they say, there's a, there's a festival that takes place at Shiloh, and our daughters all get involved, and they come out there, and they do a celebration, and they do a, a parade type through the streets. Why don't you hide in the bushes? And when they come by, you 200 men kidnap our daughters and make them your wives. That way, we haven't given our daughters to you and we keep our word, and you get a woman. Messed up ethics. Twisting their vows. That, that's what we're coming into when we start opening up First Samuel. If you were here Sunday evening, we also mentioned this. That as you go into 1 Samuel, it says the word, of the, God is, the word of God is precious in the King James. Literally, it has the idea. It's rare. They hardly hear the word of God anymore. Idolatry is still going rampant. The priesthood, as we're going to see in a few moments, the priesthood is terribly corrupted. The sons of Eli, Eli's the high priest, he has two boys, Hophni and Phinehas. These guys give religion a bad name. And it's terrible, it's good, the corruption. In fact, the Philistines are still involved with the politics of Israel, they're conquering some of the tribes, and it's a mess. And probably one of the saddest statements is chapter 4, verse 21, where it says the glory of the Lord is departing. That's because the tabernacle, they went into it. They took the Ark of the Covenant into battle, thinking if we have this religious icon with us, we're going to win. They lose the battle against the Philistines. They lose the Ark of the Covenant. And it says the glory of the Lord is gone. That's where Samuel picks up. Samuel is talking about the darkest, dreariest days How the book of Judges has just been going down, down, down. Now we're at the very bottom when Samuel comes on the scene. And what's amazing is by the time you get to chapter 7 in the book of Samuel, things changed. All of a sudden, the Jews have repented and put away their false gods. All of a sudden, they're experiencing victories over the Philistines. They win the battle. They get the Ark of the Covenant back. The people are listening to their judge leader, the man Samuel. They're hearkening to him. They realize he's a man of God, and they're starting to flock to him. And it lays the foundation so that by the end of 1 Samuel, going into 2 Samuel, we are approaching the golden years of Israel's history that just explode in Second Samuel when it is the high point of David's reign, Solomon's reign, just a couple decades, just a few decades after Sam, the book of Samuel starts. It's an amazing story. It's absolutely amazing how in one book, things just totally turn around from being so bad to all of a sudden being so wonderful. This is really a blessing. You read the book, and here's what you got to conclude. The grace of God makes hope possible in the darkest of days. Some of you last Sunday, you said, man, are days. Judges chapter 17 through 21 is, is a portrait of America. We feel like we are right where they were. But remember this. The grace of God provides hope even in the darkest times. The, the time when we can shed our light the best is when there's darkness around us. That doesn't mean we seek for it, but we realize that we can make an impact when there is darkness. We're not done. We're, we're, we're not finished as a Christian community. We're, we're not, the gospel is, is not forsaken and God is not off the throne because he got voted off by liberals. God is still in charge and God can do a work in any era even in this era what it takes is a dedicated servant like many of you like many of you to make a difference in your schools like you teens who are dedicating yourself and some of you are saying we're going to get kids to come to like the final Friday and see them get saved and we're going to make a difference in our class we're going we're to expand that kingdom of God by getting others saved that's good Some of you that say, Hey, I'm going to make a difference in my workplace. I'm going to be that light. I'm going to be that salt. God can use you. And God is still able to just change the environment by changing hearts through your influence. And so we don't want to give up. But what we need to look at and really glide and focus on this morning and this evening is a two part message that talks about what was it in Samuel's life. That all of a sudden, he was used in such a way that he could make a difference. Well, let's back it up a little bit further. What made the difference in Samuel's life? How was it? We know Samuel was just the influential character to turn it around. But what was it in his life that helped him to become such a dedicated servant to God to be used by God? What is interesting is the way chapters 1 and 2 lay out of 1 Samuel. And it's, it's just, it, it, it just amazes me. It is a story, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are a story of families. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about Samuel, other than it tells us about his family. It tells us about where he grew up, what his parents were like. And as you go through those three chapters, there's another family that he's talking about. It's Eli, the high priest family. He has two boys, Hophni and Phinehas, and as you go through chapters 1, 2, and 3, you see that there is an ongoing contrast between Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas, the new leaders of the next generation. In fact, the way this chapter is just kind of laid out is really interesting, how he does this. And I'll just throw it up here. Just If, if you were to sit down and just highlight the chapters, this is what you would have is that one paragraph will talk about Samuel's family, then he'll talk about Eli's family, then Samuel's family, then Eli's family, then Samuel's family, then Eli's family. And it goes back and forth. Don't you see what God is obviously trying to get us to see? He is trying to get us to see there was two types of families, one that made a difference for good, one that made a difference for bad. And if he's focusing this type of a passage this way, obviously he wants us to stop and say, what were these families like? What were these parents like? The parents whose sons had a real influence upon the nation. Hophni and Phineas for evil, Samuel for good. And he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, so that we catch that this is the gist of these two chapters. Talking about a family background. In fact, here's some of the contrast that you get. Just to lay it out. These guys, Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel, they have a lot of similarities. They're Jewish in background. That's an obvious. Both of them have parents who believe. Parents who would theologically say, I believe the word of God. Parents who would say, I would go to church on a regular basis. They are both both, both sets here. You have Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel. They're, they're All three of these guys are involved in the tap, tabernacle worship. It'd be like saying they go to church regularly. They're involved. They're active. They're there. Now, Hophni and Phinehas are priests. Later on, Samuel becomes the priest, prophet, judge. And so they have different functions. But then all of a sudden, there's where the similarities stop. The Hophni and Phinehas are extremely corrupt individuals. Eli, I'm sorry, Samuel is very committed to the Lord, even as a child. Extremely committed. Hophni and Phinehas... For the people who are true worshipers, they reject them. They don't want anything to do with them. But Samuel is going to be received by the people because they want to start following the Lord. What you have is in chapter 2, verse 17. Jump down there. I'll just give you uh, just a little bit of the text, and tonight we'll look at it more in depth. But look at chapter 2, verse 17. This is as he's concluding talking about Hophni and Phinehas and their corruption as priests. He says... verse 17, wherefore the sin of the young men, that's Hophni and Phinehas, was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And in the Hebrew, it's very clear. It's not they abhorred the offering. It's the men in general. It's the idea that the group that they were trying to influence, they influenced, but they turned people off to God. Absolutely turned him off to God. However, you have just the opposite with Samuel. In fact, jump down to chapter 7, where is really getting going, and we get a summary of Samuel's ministry and how... He turns people to the Lord, not turns them off to the Lord. In chapter 7, verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year in the circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, judged Israel in all those places, and he returned to Ramah, where, where his house was, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so the people are looking to him for spiritual leadership. Now, but Hophni and Phineas, most of the people are saying, I don't even want to go to church. I'm going to use that in a loose term. I don't want to go to church and worship anymore because those two are there. Those two are so corrupt and so evil, they just turn us off to God. And so what happens here is God rejects them. If you go to chapter 2, back in chapter 2, this is what God tells Eli about his boys. He says, verse 31, Behold, the days will come that I will cut off your arm, he's talking to Eli, talking about his extended family by picture speech, the arm of your father's house, that there shall not be an old man in your house, and your your kids won't grow to be old men, you won't have grandkids, etc., that will be old men. You shall see an enemy in my habitation, in all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house, in your family line, forever." And the man of thine, whom I shall cut off from mine altar, shall be to consume thine eyes, to grieve your heart. And all the increase of your house shall die in the flower, the maturity of their age. And this shall be a sign unto you, that it shall come to pass upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one single day they shall die, both of them. Now that's what God plans to do because they're evil. There is a sin unto death, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, uh, 14, 15. And these guys have committed it. And then he says just the opposite about Samuel chapter 3. Look what, what we read about Samuel after this whole account. Verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again in Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So these three guys, the two brothers in Samuel, they are just totally opposites. And they make a difference. They make an impact. They make an impact upon people for God or against God. Now the question that I want to, pre- the premise I want this morning is this. What made the difference in their life? What was it? And I think the chapters are laid out to tell us it's all about their family. Or more, more pointedly, it's about their parents. Because chapters 1 and 2 deal with Samuel's parents and, and Hophni and Phineas's parent. And it points out the good that they did, the bad that they did, and how they influenced their sons to go the way that they did. And so the, the gist of this text is really challenging to just bring us to some observations, then we'll get practical here. Some major family principles that lay out this way. One is this. Our spiritual ancestry... Our spiritual ancestry does not guarantee ongoing blessings from God without end. What I'm getting at is this, just because our parents went to church and they were godly or they served the Lord doesn't mean that God is going to continue to bless us just because we had godly parents. The idea here is that, is this just that makes it very clear that just because these guys were Jews and they were of the priestly line, they thought they could do whatever they want and god's going to accept them because their dad was the priest that their their dad their dad before them their great grandfather aaron was saved therefore they're okay and it's very clear in this text that that's not true he even says these guys were not believers. Just because we grow up in a home where there is a belief in Jehovah God, a belief in Jesus Christ, doesn't make you and me a believer. It comes down to what have we done with Christ. Here's that old saying, God doesn't have grandchildren, he only has children. Okay, you need to be born again. Not, not, it doesn't, you don't get to heaven based upon what mom and dad believed. You aren't going to heaven based upon mom and dad going to church and carrying a Bible. It's what have you done with Jesus Christ? Well, Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't realize that. They just assumed because we go to temple, because our dad is the temple leader, we're okay. They were not okay. God judged them because of their their lack of belief and their choices they made. Let me make another major observation. Kids are responsible for their own spiritual choices. Children are responsible for their choice. They need to get born again. They need to dedicate their life to Christ. They can't wear our spirituality and bank on it. They have to have their own walk with the Lord. However, parents are responsible for how they influence their kids' choices. Have they laid it out? Have they created a desire to follow the Lord? Have the parents made following the Lord a priority? Have they given them an example? Do they give them the encouragement? I cannot make my kids get saved or serve the Lord. You can't either. But I am responsible for what example did I give them? Did I make it appealing? Did I make belief in Christ reasonable? Did I present a consistent life before them so they would want to follow Christ? That's what I'm responsible for, is what kind of pattern did I set? What kind of example did I set? What kind of influence? Did I give them the influence that when it comes to worship, it's just you can do whatever you want? God will take whatever you want and you're just doing him a favor? Or did I point out to them that worship is required by God Almighty because he is Lord, he's creator, we don't do our own will, we do his will. And so the, the example here is really, really important that we look at and say, wait a minute, Eli wasn't chastened because his sons chose to do evil, he was chastened because he didn't influence his sons to reject the evil. He didn't stop them. We'll get into this more tonight. His story is phenomenally challenging to any parent, and I dare you to be here, to hear to be challenged by things to avoid. Number three, we can lose our opportunities to serve God by the way we parent. I know that is so true of my life. Because if I know not, if I as a preacher cannot, can, cannot rule my own household, he says I'm disqualified because how can I rule or lead in the church of God? That's First Timothy chapter 3 verse 5. Well, back in that day, Eli's family is taken out. God sends a prophet to him and then God sends a message through Samuel to say, You're done. You're done. Because you have not influenced your boys the way you should have, you're done. You're done. Ministry as a parent depends upon, external ministry as a parent depends upon what you do in the home. It is so critical. Number four, we can lose our kids by the way we parent them. We can lose our kids by the way we parent them. If we don't parent them in a way that is consistent and godly, they may turn against the Lord. Number five, we can turn others outside our family Away from or to the Lord through our kids. Isn't this amazing? Why what my kids do that can bring people to the Lord or it can push people away from the Lord. So what I did with my kids is important in witnessing. Do my kids pick up from me a desire and an example to follow Christ so that they bring others to Christ? Or do they pick up from me an inconsistency, a hypocrisy, um, a lack of dedication, and they don't have it, and others are turned off to the gospel because of that hypocrisy? What, what challenging thoughts, what provocative thoughts that bring us back to this simple principle. What we do in our homes is important. It is so critical. It is so important that what he does in this text is he lays out two choices that we have as leaders in our home, as parents, as grandparents. As young people in the home, you have two choices. But especially the parents who are heading the home, he is going to say through this text that this is what you should attempt to do. This is what you should avoid doing. He gives examples attempt to do this like, like Elkanah and his wife did with Samuel. Avoid doing this like Eli did with Hophni and Phinehas. And then he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And an extremely practical, extremely challenging text that focuses not just on a historical story, but it tells us about family life back in those days, what was working and what wasn't working to make an impact for the Lord. So let's, let's look at what worked. Let's take just that one portion this morning. Let's look at what you and I should attempt We're going to look at Elkanah and Hannah. And again, I touched on some of this Sunday night, but I want to expand upon it even more. In chapters 1, we start their story. In chapter 1, it's just a real quick little ditty about Elkanah and his wife. And it says there's a certain man, and it gives this big name that I can't pronounce in verse 1. In Mount Ephraim, his name was Elkanah. It gives his family history, and it tells us a little bit about him. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Panina, And Panina had children. He goes on, he talks about these individuals. Now, what, what we find out is this through the story. They did a really good job with their son. But they were in an ordinary family. They are not a family that's filled with miracles. In fact, his birth was not a miracle. Other than God finally opened her womb. Okay, and it wasn't a miraculous birth, it wasn't a virgin birth, it was just that she had been held back from having children and all of a sudden God allows her to have a child and later some more children. But we know this as well, that unlike most of the people in their society, they're living in the days of judges, most of the people have rejected Jehovah, but they didn't. They are going to go to the tabernacle, they are going to worship, they're going to visit Shiloh. A lot of the other peoples have their own little gods anymore. So they're standing out as the remnant of believers in Israel. And what we have about their story is that they were going to experience some very normal difficulties in life. And the bottom line is everybody experiences difficulties. Everybody has challenges. I was reading an article that came out of the Newsweek magazine, I believe it was Newsweek, and it had an article in there here just a few weeks ago about some individual who was writing from a company that publishes self-help books. It was one of the company vice presidents. And in this article, it was talking about we who produce self-help books. You know, you can do better, you can do better, and the positive thinking uh, book publisher. And they were saying, you would think that somebody in our business has it all together, especially all the authors and the people who work in our company, that they have it all together because they're writing advisory books. They're writing books that other people read to figure out how to handle trials. And this woman who's writing this article, this vice president said, In my business, I have learned that that is absolutely not the truth. She says, in fact, in the company where I'm working right now, she said, they're building a second floor on our office building for one reason. One of the managers and the person in charge of printing cannot stand each other. They do not want to work near each other, so they're building one whole floor to keep them apart. She said there is another individual, another two individuals in our self-help book and how to get along with people department. There's two fellas that co-authored a book on how to get along with people. They're suing each other. Okay. She says, then there's another person that is written about how to control your emotions and all. She says, this fella literally. When he's on the phone talking to people, he gets so upset, he literally physically falls on the floor and does gyrations on the floor, like a child temper tantrum. She said, you know, it's just, she says, and then there's the fella in our company who wrote the book on how to overcome your fears. She said, if you look at that book cover, you'll find that there's no picture of the author. The reason being, he has a phobia of having his picture taken. So you look and say, okay, all these experts, do experts have problems? Yeah, everybody does. I know, you look around the congregation right now, just look at people across the uh, the room and say, they don't, and they're looking at you and saying, you don't. And you're all going, yes I do, yes I do, yes I do, because all people have difficulties. Elkanah and Hannah are godly individuals, but they have a problem. The problem is described very quickly. You can read it through. Last Sunday night, I did it at length. We went through the text. But it's a plight that is, it, it starts with, and, and I, I don't mean to be silly, I don't mean to be trite, but he's got two wives, two ladies in the kitchen, okay? It doesn't work. These two ladies aren't just in the kitchen. They're in other parts of the house, and that includes the private chamber, and that's where the problem comes. The one lady is loved, and that's Hannah. She's the favored wife. The Penina, the second wife, she's the one that's able to have children. And she is throwing it in Hannah's face. Nah, 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 nah I have kids and you don't. You know, and, she, and it becomes a serious problem between these two. That uh, What happens is you read through that. Hannah is just broken hearted. She doesn't have a child, number one, and this woman doesn't let go of it her second wife, sister, that's just a problem. she torments, literally talks about tormenting. And it says that she's in bitterness and she's grieving and she's just so distraught over this idea. And her husband comes and says to her, now calm down, calm down. Aren't I better to you than 10 boys? And she's going, I want a boy. I want a boy. And so there's tension growing between husband and wife. He can't make her happy. And it's not because she is, you know, just a moody woman. She's breaking in her heart because she wants a child. And so there's the plight. There's the problem. And it disrupts the worship. It talks in this chapter that they go to worship, and even when they come down to the tabernacle for worship, Penina is going, nyan, 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 to the point that Hannah can't even eat the meal with her. She's just sick of this woman. She gets up and she goes to the tabernacle and starts, you know, talking there. And she makes a prayer. You look at the prayer in verses 10 and 11. And her prayer is is very simple. Please give me a male child. And she prays for this boy. And in her prayer, she's very submissive. We talked about this last Sunday night. If you will, give me a boy. She is very sincere. She's pouring her heart out to God. She is weeping. She's crying. She's not going through pretense. When she comes to worship, she is just very, very transparent to the Lord. And in her prayer... This is something that, that maybe we miss. She isn't selfish in her prayer. If you look at the big picture, she's praying for a boy because she wants a child in her arms, but there's something bigger than that, something more important. Before I go into any further, let's just ask this question, okay? And this is where I ended up last Sunday night. Are you willing, as parents, to become this type of pr- parent when it comes to your kids? That you would say, I am going to do what Hannah did. I am going to pray for my kids. I'm going to pray, pray, pray. I'm going to pray for revival. I'm going to pray for blessing. And I'm going to, this next month, set aside some extra time, every, uh, most every day, and pray, especially for my kids, my grandkids. I expanded it last Sunday evening because my point was, this can make a difference in your kids' lives. So they can make a difference in other lives. And I expanded it to this thought was, what about those who don't have children living in their home? Would you pray for the kids of our church? And spend two days a week for 15 minutes praying. We're, we're approaching a missions conference, a missions month. Some of you are done parenting, but you have grandkids to pray for. Some of you are, are not even in that realm of parenting. There's kids in this church to pray that God would use them, that God would get a hold of their heart. Well, We, we talked about that last Sunday night. Her promise that she makes, you have the plight, You have her prayer, and you have her promise. Her promise is real simple. She says, God, if you give me this male child, I'll give him back to you. That's in verse 11. As you look at verse 11, and you see it, and it's there, it's unfolded. She vows a vow. She said, "Oh Lord, if you will, look on the affliction of your handmaid, remember me, forget me not. Will you give your handmaid a child? This is why I say it is not selfish, so that I will give him to you. All the days of his life. I'm not going to keep this child for me. I want my arms to hold a baby, but I'm not going to keep that baby. I want to give him back to you because I believe our nation is in trouble. And I believe that if you give me a child, I can rear him and he can make a difference. She is looking at this parenting as a ministry. Not as a selfish, fulfill my, my feelings. But God, give me this child so I can raise this child to serve you. A selfless prayer. A de- prayer of dedication. she says, and I'll, and I'll raise this boy to be a Nazarite. He'll serve you. Our nation is in desperate trouble. You, use me through my kids to make a difference. And that's her promise. That's her commitment. God answers her prayer. God gives her a boy. She calls the boy Samuel, which means the Lord he has heard my prayer. And then what happens is the area that I didn't touch on Sunday evening, but this to me is the most impacting part of the story, the performance by the parents. What they did after the child is born. They fulfill, they carry through in their commitment completely. Think this through. It is easy to make a promise in the middle of anguish, in the middle of the foxhole, sitting at the doctor's office and waiting for them to give you the results. It's easy to make commitment. When you're without a job, when you're, when you're struggling with a relationship, it is easy to promise God anything. I am desperate, God. God. Please, God, work this out in my my behalf. I promise if you do, I will. She did that. She's in desperation mode. She makes a commitment, or she makes a promise, but she follows through with it completely. You know, think this through. Her husband had to be a part of it. You don't give away a baby without the husband being involved. He would catch on, yes? He would notice, some of you wives are going, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I think he would. Okay. Yeah. Go back to chapter 1 and watch, watch the story unfold. Go down to verse 21. Well, we'll pick up 20. Wherefore it came to pass that the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, she bears a son. She calls him Samuel, because I have asked him of the Lord. Look at the next few verses. This gives you an insight into them as a couple. And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, three, four years of age, whatever it was. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. Please do not read the next verse that goes like this, like the typical husband thing that goes, whatever. That is not what he's doing. He isn't doing whatever you say, it's okay with me. That's not the point. That's not what he says. In fact, notice how it goes. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, "Do what seems good in your. It seems to you good. Tarry until you have weaned him. Only the Lord establish His word." What's that mean? Okay. His whole idea is she intends this. If you look at the thing, she intends when she gives the baby, she's leaving the child there. He's going to live there the rest of his life. This isn't like I'll take him up there for for summer camp. He gets, God gets it, and the husband is going to respond and make some real important information. Now, before I, before I point out something, let me take you back into their time period. In the Old Testament law, was this unusual, to give your child this way? Well, back in the law that they're under, every male child had to be redeemed, you had to buy them back from the Lord because every child, male child belonged to the Lord. And so they would have what's called a, uh, a tax, a redemption tax that was five shekels. So every one of us who had boys, we would pay five shekels and that child, we could take the child home. He's our child that on loan from God. But there was another option that they could, it was left in the law, they could leave the child there to be serving the Lord for weeks or months, and we're talking probably older children, which by the way, if that were the case, some of you teens would end up at church all the time, okay? So at that time they could do that. That the parents would would just say, okay, I'm going to give my child to to the Lord. You know, like some people, I'll send my child on a missions trip. That could be for a year or two or whatever. That's what they could be doing. And then they could redeem them later. Her vow is different. She says, I will give him lifelong." He's just not going to the temple for a short period of time. I'm vowing he's going to stay there, he's going to live there from three, four years until however old he lives, and he's going to follow the Nazarite vow, which remember we talked about with Samson, the Nazarite vow basically says you don't do the wines, Um, you let your hair grow long, you don't cut it, and you stay away from dead bodies. And so that was the vow of the Nazarite. And as a result of those things, especially the hair length, people would know that this person has extremely long hair, this guy does, he's a Nazarite, his life is dedicated to the Lord. And she says, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so what happens in this text is they keep their promise, and when Elkanah is talking to her, he's basically saying, make sure the Lord fulfills his word. It's the idea of this. We need to keep our word so God can continue to bless us. That's the gist of his statement. You make sure, wife, woman, that we perform our vow. Because if we vow and do not keep our vow, we lie to God. And we want God to fulfill his word to us. Therefore, we have to fulfill our word to the Lord. And so he's expressing concern. He's not saying, do whatever you want, woman. He is saying, okay, if you're going to keep the child home for these couple years, that's fine. But don't you get to the point that you won't give this child up. We have got to keep our word to God. You promised this child to the Lord. You're going to have to give this child to the Lord. We are going to have to give him to the Lord if we want God's blessing upon our life. So when the child is weaned, which again, I don't know what the age is. Okay. Some will say two, some will say five, I don't know, so I just put three or four. Then he, uh, when they do, they bring the child, verse 24. Interesting what happens. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, and watch what happens in here. She takes three bullocks, one ephah flour, a bottle of wine, and brought him to the house, and it says at the end, the child was what? He wants us to understand, the child is Young. Okay, this is still a toddler you know, period, preschool age. They slew the bullock. They brought the child to Eli. She says, O oh my Lord, as my soul liveth, my Lord, I am that woman that stood by you three, four years ago praying to the Lord. For this very child I prayed, and the Lord given, him, given me my petition. Therefore, I am now lending him to the Lord as long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Interesting. Interesting. They make an offering. When they come, and by the way, when you make a vow in the Old Testament, you had to finish it up with an offering. In the Old Testament, do you know how much they usually brought for an offering? I mean, you haven't done this lately, I know. You haven't brought your cow or oxen. Okay, but do you know how many they would bring typically? One. And they'd only bring a small portion of the wine and the flour. How many did she bring? She brought three. She, according to what the Old Testament law is, and this is all spelled out in the Old Testament, and they want us to catch this. The author wants us to understand. God wants us to see. She tripled everything. She isn't trying to beg off, God, I'm going to keep my boy, but I'll give you three of everything extra. That's not her point at all. Her point when she comes and brings the son is, I am bringing my boy and when I bring my boy, I am also bringing him completely before you. And I am dedicating everything. I'm even going to give you some more of what, I, what, what you don't ask me. I have every intention of following through and uh, fulfilling my word and making other sacrifice. I'm going to go the extra mile for you, God. I'm going to give you even more than what I promised and more than what you required. Because I count it in honor. To be able to serve you. How does Paul put it? We're supposed to count it an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ. Most of us don't. We're supposed to count it an honor if we were challenged for our faith. Most of us don't. We're to count it an honor to be able to worship. Most of us think, get over it. Come on, preacher, get on with it. I've got other things to do. We're supposed to count it an honor to pray. And we struggle to do more than just the mealtime. This woman really, I mean, when it came to performing what she promised God, it was real. The devotion to Jehovah God was not the norm. She is, she is opposite her society. Most people aren't following. In fact, I remind you, and this is why I took the time, most people were twisting their promises and their commitment to suit themselves. Not Elkanah and Hannah. We said this, this is what we do to God and for God this is what we committed and we're not going to try to fudge on it we're not going to change and by the way this devotion is not easy ladies you you would know what this is like how would you like to give up a boy well maybe you're you're thinking ah, it wouldn't be so hard that's not true most of you would say this would be really difficult this would be hard Do you remember that just nine months before this, she is broken. I want the baby. I want the baby. I'm tired of empty arms. And now she's saying, here, I will be happy with empty arms. This is really hard for her. This is difficult. You know, and some of you say, well, she has other children. No, she doesn't. Not at this time. Read the story. She doesn't have other children until after they make this commitment and they follow through. The kids, other kids come you know, a year later or more. She is giving her only child because she promised. This is what I promised you, God, I'm going to do it. It's amazing. It's amazing that they literally follow through with this when nobody in their society would do this. Samuel's parents were teaching him a lesson early on that when we make a commitment to God, we're following through. We don't care. It's going to cost us, but God is our God. We worship him. You know, the other thing that strikes me is how they not only follow through uh, with completeness, but cheerfully, cheerfully. I think that's involved with this sacrifice. This sacrifice that she brings, she is, you know, it's not that, okay, yay, I'm done with diapers, yay. I don't think that's her mood at all. I don't think she's thrilled in that regard, but she's thrilled that she can give her child to the Lord. She is thrilled that she can raise a child for the glory of God and that child can make a difference. She doesn't know at this time what the difference is, but God, I am excited about what you can do with my child. And she triples the sacrifice the thanksgiving sacrifice at the conclusion of the vow. And then she makes a praise prayer that is part of chapter 2. I know we looked at it at length, but I want you to catch just one phrase. Last Sunday night we tore it apart, but here, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in my Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies. I rejoice in your salvation. God, I don't know what you're going to do, but I personally am excited. Yes, is there twinges of, of angst? Is there twinges of not knowing the future? Yes, is there, is there going to be some lonely evenings without the child? Yes. But I'm excited about giving my child to you and letting you do a work for them in, my, in, in, a, in a phenomenal way. Something else about their performance. It was continuous. It was continuous. What I mean by that is this. Read the story. It says that they leave him there. And you go down, you go down into the chapter and you read in verse 11. It says, Elkanah went to Ramah, to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli. They left him there. Jump down a little bit further, down to verse 18. But the child ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year. She's providing clothing. She hasn't forgotten about him. She came up every year with her husband to offer sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife. The Lord, give thee seed of this woman because of what you have loaned to the Lord. They went home, their own home, and the Lord visited her and she conceives these other children. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. It's not that they didn't care, but they made a promise. And they follow through. And they still care about him. This is me. This is not you. You wouldn't do this. I, I, I think in my weakness I would. I think the next year I would say one year was enough. He's coming home. Okay, maybe I'd leave him there two years. But then I'd go back and say, you yeah, know, it's enough. I'm taking him home. You can have him when he turns a teenager. But I'm taking him home now. I don't know if I'd leave him there year after year. I don't know what it would be like to go back and see him and say... My, have you grown. Wouldn't that that be difficult? You know, what what strikes me is that they leave him there year after year after year. That's amazing. But I think there's even more to it, is how they convinced others that this was okay. Okay, in that sense that she had to persuade her husband, I made this promise and we got to go on this together. Okay, and so he's with it. But they have to convince Samuel that this is a good thing. How many four-year-olds would want to do this? How many would want to stay there year after year? They have to convince him and train him that this is important. We made this promise to God. Now, there's a whole lot of extra in this story that you and I can mull over and think over, but the point is very simple, is that this child, the reality is, he wasn't angry about it. How do I know that? Look at verse 28. At, at the end of chapter 1, not chapter 2, but at the end of chapter 1. It says, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. And he worshipped the Lord there. Most scholars are assuming that he is not a female pronoun. It is referring to Samuel. That Samuel worshipped. That Samuel doesn't get bitter to the Lord. That Samuel doesn't get angry over the Lord. He grows up there. He's enjoying what he's doing. God is using him in a phenomenal way. Here's the bottom line. Samuel's parents were dedicated to the Lord. This was real in their life. Church wasn't just a thing to do. It was real in their life. It involved more than just attending. They had been attending the tabernacle. And that was rare. Just like in our society, most people don't go to church but they thought there was more to serving God than just going to church. So what they do is they make this commitment that when they prayed, they prayed from the heart. When they hurt, they go to God with the hurt. They pour out to the Lord like she did. They, they believed that when they prayed, God would hear. Because when Eli says, woman, the Lord's going to bless you, she says, good, and she goes home happy in chapter 1. Before she even has the child, she believes what she hears. They are people who make sacrifices of their child, of their life, of their family, of their goods. That they're worshiping God this way. Does it make make sense then that their son would catch on to this type of dedication? That he who has seen it and learned it at her feet, even though he's a preschooler, he's learning so much at her feet about faith following God, doing what you promised, and following through with that, that he becomes an example to the society and brings revival. Tremendous individual. Tremendous story. Challenging. Which brings me to this thought. Never underestimate the spiritual influence you have as a parent. Never underestimate it. Never say, oh, well, you know, I only have them for a short time. Never underestimate how you can impact your kids. Never underestimate how the lack of dedication can impact your kids. Well, I go to church. Again, we're we're not talking going to church. We're talking about genuine involvement with worshiping the Lord beyond just showing up. It's a lifestyle. It happens all during the week. It's faith in Christ. It's following Christ. Never underestimate the good example you set, how it can really make a difference, and the lack of a good example can really influence the other way. Don't underestimate, okay, the impact of that lack of dedication. I'm going to keep on going. Don't underestimate the importance of keeping your promises to the Lord. You've vowed, you've said something, you've made commitment. Be honest before God. Yeah, we, we all want people to be honest. We want people to be honest. I remember, I grew up in a small, small town, uh, Meat Market. Meat market advertised, we're the honest meat market in town. And a lady, I don't remember the lady's name, but I remember her coming to our gas station afterwards telling us this story that she went to the meat market that had some special sale on chicken. She went there, and she talked to the one guy, and his name was Mike, and I know the last name, but that's not necessary right now. And she says, I talked to Mike there, and I said, hey, do you have a good-sized chicken? And he said, yeah. Well, Mike didn't tell her that he was running out of chicken. The sales had gone on really good that day. And he had one left. And so he said, I got a good size one. He brought that one back from the back room, put it on the, up on the counter. She says, I'll take that. It looks big. How big is he? he put it on the scale. And he says, oh, that's about six pounds, whatever it was. And she said, oh, well, do you have anything bigger? And he goes, well, let me go and check. And so he went to the back room. He had no more chicken. But he came back with the same one, put it on the scale, and put his finger on the scale. He says, this one's eight pounds. She said, I'll take both. And you and I would say, good for him, right? Yeah. yeah, he wasn't honest with her. There's a story that's written. It's Bob, Bob Welch in his book on, on a parenting. He writes about being at a game, and it's a seventh grade you know, teen league that they're playing. And he says, this one kid gets up to bat, and it's like the, the last inning, and you know it's a close game by one score. They need to get somebody on base. And this kid's an average player, and he gets up to bat, and he, the count now is like two strikes, one ball, And and the kid is there, he's ready to hit, and the pitcher pitches, and it's a little bit wild. The kid drops. And the umpire says, oh, batter hit, take your base. Yay, they get somebody on base because the slugger's coming up next. So we got a chance. And the kid gets up, and he looks at the ump, and he said, the ball didn't hit me, sir. And the ump said, nah, son, just take your base. Well, the reality was that the ump had been blocked out to some degree, but just the way the kid fell, he just assumed and the kid said, but sir, the ball missed me. It never hit me. Go ahead, take your base. And the fans are saying, take your base! Take your base! And the kid just stands there. He says, sir, it never hit me. I know it didn't even, it didn't even get close. You know, right, sw- you know, swiping in my clothes. And the umpire looks at the coach, and the coach goes, and the umpire says, okay, batter up. The kid goes to bat, and he hits the ball. He gets a double and I don't know the rest of the story, okay, as far as what happens. Except for this. The other coach then calls for a timeout because he's got to set up some defensive play. But he walks over to the umpire, and he calls the other coach over, and he says to the other coach, he says, don't you got to love that kid on second base? He says, this is what it's about, kids with character. Now, we like those stories, and we say, yay, be honest, be honest, you know, are you? Are you honest with the Lord? Do, do you remember when you stood before the crowd and you said, I will work on my marriage? And you vowed God that? Do you remember you made a promise to God? Some of you, a lot of your teens last summer, you went forward. You made a promise I'm going to read my Bible daily. You promised. We had a missions conference last year. There's a lot of people that raise their hand. I promise I'm going to share the gospel. You get baptized. And when you're baptized, whatever words are being said when you're baptized, you know, baptizing your old walk in newness of life, the idea is I'm going to follow Christ. After I'm baptized, I'm going to be different. I'm going to serve Jesus and I'm going to love Jesus. Are you? Are you really, really Christ-like the way you talk? the way you respond to family members, the way you treat other people. You promised at the baby dedication. You promised before everybody you would be faithful to the Lord in raising those kids. You promised you would bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You promised you would set an example of worship. You promised when God gave you that different job, you said, God, I'll be charitable. It's a little bit better income and I'll be more charitable in what I, what I give. You promised when God answered your prayers, when you were in the middle of your own plight, you promised that God you would really be faithful in worship. You'd be faithful in, in just devotion to him. When we voted the other week and we said we're going to take a goal in just a couple of weeks of 220,000, that was a commitment of not committing other people. That was committing me, committing me. You, committing you, that we will give sacrificially. We promised. These are promises we make. And if we are going to make a difference in our own kids' lives, our grandkids' lives, if we're going to make a difference in this community, it starts with us. Attempting to do what is right saying that what we will do is we will be the example of trust and dedication, saying that we will keep our word to the Lord, saying that we will sacrifice the way God would have us to sacrifice, and we'll do this week after week and month after month, year after year, even when it gets hard, even when our emotional cords get tugged on. We promise God, we promise you that we will be faithful and loyal to you. We give you our hearts this morning.